0: All right, good morning again. Yeah, right. Anyway, uh, for any of you that are new, uh, I'm not Ronnie. And there's many reasons for that. But no, this is not the normal Sunday. I don't normally lead worship and preach and do everything. Um, But as we were kind of together, Matt and Ronnie and I, thinking through a sermon series for the fall, and we did this one, Uh, We kind of started setting out different ones that each of us felt kind of passionate about. And uh, Ronnie said, I need a break. So somehow we ended up with this block of Sundays where Ronnie's not preaching. But no, uh, and this just happened to be one that we were talking that I I felt super important. Oh, thank you. I'm getting there. Um, So yeah, if you're a a student kindergarten through fifth grade, now is the time. See, I'm new at this. Uh, Come on forward. Try not to kill each other. Uh, if, if you are new here and you have a student in this age group and would like to send them, please do, uh, they're going to go downstairs for a lesson, and then you can pick them up downstairs. Uh, if you want to know what's going on, any of you parents are always welcome to go with them and check it out. or if you just want to avoid listening to me, I'll understand. I'm sure their lesson will be more interesting, but anyway, um, and then you know, pick them up later. Uh, as they're going down, I wanted to talk a little bit about the title of our sermon series. Um, The great paradox, life after death. And Ronnie's talked a lot about the life after death aspect the last few weeks, but we haven't really talked about why we use the phrase the great paradox. Uh, When you guys hear the word paradox, what comes to mind? If you're like me and you're a nerd, it's probably time travel, right? So there's a few examples that I came up with to kind of of display this, but the, the definition that I found was this. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition that, when investigated or explained, may prove to be well founded or true. Or it can also be a situation, person, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. So, an example would be, and this is kind of a common one, but um, would be a phrase if I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. It's contradictory, but true. So, it's a paradox. Uh, A time travel example would be this. A man learns of a way to travel through time. He goes into a bookstore and purchases a copy of Hamlet, written by Shakespeare. He goes back to his time machine, travels back in time to when Shakespeare was alive but had not yet written Hamlet, gives him the book. Hamlet reads it, proceeds to write Hamlet, then throughout history it's published, whatever, ends up on the bookshelf where that man then goes and buys it. Who wrote Hamlet? Now that's kind of a fantasy one. Um, another paradox is, uh, is that I've seen is, it's often called the card paradox, but for today, we're going to call it the slide paradox. So Becky, if you bring up the first slide, the statement on the next slide is false. Okay, seems easy enough. Okay, what's the next slide say? The statement on the previous slide is true. Well, for that to be true, then the first statement that can be false and, you know, think about it, it's a big circular problem. So that's a, that's a paradox. Um, another thing that some people may say is a paradox is a 20-minute sermon. (laughs) Trust me, we're not having that today. (laughs) But anyway, so why the great paradox when it comes to this sermon series? Well, just life after death in and of itself is a bit of a paradox because of that. But I don't think that we think of it quite in that way most of the time. It more has to do with what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 22 through 25, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but he basically says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. And later on goes to say the the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of men, even though they see it to be foolishness. And the truth is, when it comes to a life of discipleship following Jesus, many of the things that we come to know to be true and are called to do in our life will seem like a paradox to the world around us. And one of those things is the thing that we're going to talk about today. It has to do with the Holy Spirit and His work in creation. Um, And just that in and of itself is a bit of a paradox. God created us as physical beings. We're part of a physical creation. Yet if we are in Christ, we know because of what Ronnie presented a couple weeks ago, we are gifted the Holy God's Spirit. So we are both physical and supernatural at the same time. That in and of itself from a scientific perspective, would be a paradox. And one of the things that Ronnie talked about last, you know, two weeks ago with the Spirit, was the Spirit's work in bringing about the work of the gospel in the life of an individual as he comes to salvation. And that's sort of the foundation that we're going to build on today. And I wanted to summarize that a little bit, but I couldn't come up with a better way of doing it than what John Piper said. So I'm going to quote John Piper here. And he says this, Human nature, with which all of us are born, will not enter into the kingdom of God unless it is changed. This change is called being born again. And what this means is that the Spirit of God creates something new within the believer. Now, it gets a little bit technical here, so try to hang with me. To put it another way, the Holy Spirit establishes himself as the new ruling principle of our life. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. In other words, that which is begotten by the Spirit has the nature of the Spirit, is permeated by the character of the Spirit, and is animated by the Spirit. This change is owing wholly to the Spirit's work of free grace prior to any saving faith on our part. The new birth is not caused by our faith. On the contrary, our faith is caused by the new birth. No one can come to the Son unless it is granted to Him by the Father. That's from John 6, chapter, verse 65. Therefore, the life we have in Christ is owing wholly to the work of God's Spirit, and we have no ground for boasting at all. We live by the Spirit. I want to go back to the statement that he said. This change, meaning the new birth, is owing wholly to the Spirit's work of free grace prior to any saving faith on our part. The new birth is not caused by our faith. On the contrary, our faith is caused by the new birth. This may seem like a semantical thing, but it is an important distinction. If we believe that our faith is what saves us, it becomes a work. If we understand that saving grace through faith comes as a result of the Spirit's work in our lives and a new birth, then it becomes an act of grace and a gift from God. And that is why that statement I found to be so important. Because we talk about saved by grace through faith. But sometimes we turn faith into a work. And the truth is, faith is a work, but not ours. It's a work of the Spirit in my life. And that's an important thing to understand as we go forward in speaking about how we walk by the Spirit. And so John Piper then says, Therefore, the life we have in Christ is owing wholly to the work of God's Spirit, and we have no ground for boasting at all. We live by the Spirit. When he says we live by the Spirit, he means that our life in Christ, our new life, is only because of the Spirit. We owe our new life having been crucified with Christ because of the Spirit's work in our life. And that is important because then we know what Paul says in Galatians 5, and we'll read that in a second, and also what, what uh, Piper said there. If we live by the Spirit, we must walk by the Spirit, which is kind of the, the whole point of today. So I'm going to read Galatians 5, 16 through 25 here. If you want to turn with me, you can, or it'll be on the screen. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh set its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, distinctions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things things like these of which I forewarn you, basically saying, etc. Just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us also walk by the spirit when we walk by the spirit we put this, put aside the desires of our old self the desires of the flesh and we pursue the will of the holy spirit walking by the spirit is the fulfillment of what Christ said in Luke 9 and in other parts of the gospel, when he said, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, to quote John Piper, The flesh produces one kind of desires and the spirit produces another kind. And they are opposed to each other. Walking by the spirit is what we do when the desires produced by the spirit are stronger than the desires produced by the flesh. This means that walking by the spirit is not something we do in order to get Spirit's help, but rather, just as the phrase implies, it is something we do by the enablement of the Spirit. So, this is important. Walking by the Spirit is not something we do of our own will, it is something that we do by allowing the Spirit to will us. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, but basically, when this happens, when we allow that, things begin to happen. And so, there are three things that I want to talk about that happen when we walk by the Spirit. First of all, And this is probably the most important, because without it, the rest doesn't really happen. When we walk by the Spirit, we are changed. Now, this might seem obvious, and it, you know, if we're no longer led by the flesh, or now led by the Spirit, things ought to look a little bit differently. I mean, that seems obvious. An example of this would be the apostles. You look at the apostles in the Gospels, and they're not super impressive personalities, right? For the most part, they were simple men who were scared and didn't really get what Jesus was trying to accomplish. You look at Jesus' ministry with his apostles. He's constantly trying to explain to them what's going on, and they're not getting it. Um, Peter would argue with Jesus about what he's saying. No, that can't be right. It's got to be this. Uh, Peter's a great example because, first of all, he's kind of brash. He seems to lack wisdom and ultimately does some cowardly things. He argues with Jesus, uh, he fights what's happening, and then in the end when push comes to shove and shove and Jesus is arrested, he goes and hides and denies that he ever knew him. But then you look at at Peter after Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes, and first of all, he gives one of the most effective and probably most clear presentations of the gospel, many are saved, and goes on to lead the church in this great establishment in the Middle East and Greece, has a huge role to play not even the, it doesn't even look like the same guy and that can be true of many of the other apostles as well and we'll look at a couple of other, other examples later but how are we changed when we walk by the Spirit well first of all our heart is changed and this is the fulfillment of a pros- prophecy given to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27 it says this and this is a promise given to, to us by God I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now just for clarity's sake, I want to make a distinction here. Ezekiel uses the word flesh differently than the way Paul uses it in Galatians. Um, Paul is talking about the conflict between desires of flesh and desires of spirit. When Ezekiel uses flesh, He's talking about the hardness of heart. And that's a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament. Um, that when someone has a hardened heart, they're opposed to God. Pharaoh had his heart hardened when Moses came to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, many times throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles, the Israelites are described as having hard hearts when they turn their back on God. Essentially, what Ezekiel's saying here is that a heart of stone is hardened to God's truth, but a heart of flesh is available to, God, to God's spirit and his leading. And this is important. So the promise is this. I will, put my, I will give you a heart of, change your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, and I will give you my spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's not that when that happens, we will follow God's rules. God will cause us through his spirit, to follow his statutes, and this is kind of contrasted by Paul in the, in that Galatians five list. He basically gives us two lists. He gives us the works of the spirit, or sorry, the works of the flesh, and he gives us the fruit of the spirit. The works of the flesh are basically broken down into three groups. We have sexual sins, immorality, impurity, sensuality. We have religious sins, idolatry, and sorcery, and we have social sins. Hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, envy, drunkenness, etc., etc. And that's where he did that whole thing. And then he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, and he, ba- he tells us that when we walk by the Spirit, the change of heart that happens causes our priorities to change and our desires to change and our will to change. We no longer desire the self-gratifying, community-destroying sins that used to direct our lives. Instead, our hearts are changed, and the Spirit gives us new desires. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And if this is a true change of heart, and we are really walking by the Spirit, it will be obvious in the way we live and interact with others. Just compare those two, because those two things, as Paul said, are in vast conflict with each other. Think about anger versus peace, joy, self-control. Think about jealousy Versus patience, kindness, gentleness, selfishness, sensuality, the whole list. It's obvious that the two don't coexist. And so when we are changed by the Holy Spirit, we allow Him to direct our heart's desires and will. And this is, again, this goes back to that first fundamental idea. This is not something that we do. This is something we allow the Spirit to do in us. And again, this is, this is one of those things, and, and paradox is going to kind of be a thing, because it's going to feel circular, like which came first. But if we try to do this ourselves, we're going to be constantly frustrated and feel like we're beating our head against a brick wall. But if we do allow the Holy Spirit to change our desires, and to go back to what, what Piper said, basically the desires of the flesh are no longer what drives us, but the desires of the Spirit are. The desires become stronger, then we begin to change. And when that happens, a couple of other things happen. So, when we walk by the Spirit, we are then empowered. Um, and empowerment, empower, is, is a word that didn't even really exist before the 1980s. Um, it came about kind of as a part of the leadership movement for the 80s and 90s, and it was one of those things that we like to do in American English where we have a word that really means this, but it's not good enough, so we make up another one. Because what it basically means is you're a good leader. To empower someone means that you have given them the resources, the, the abilities, and the confidence to do what they're supposed to do. And that's being a good leader, right? But we needed to make up a word, so we say we're going to empower people, which I'm kind of glad we did because it works really good for my sermon. But when I say that the Holy Spirit empowers us, I mean that He gives us the knowledge, confidence, means, and ability to carry out God's mission in the world, which is spreading the gospel. So think about this the Spirit empowers us by granting us the knowledge, confidence, means, and ability to carry out God's mission. So let's go back and look at the example of the apostles in Acts, obviously, Peter. But not only did the Spirit empower the apostles with the ability to speak the gospel, he also gave them boldness to speak out against those that opposed the gospel. Look at the example of Stephen. We don't know a lot about Stephen prior to what we see in Acts 7, uh, but I guarantee you when he goes in before those Pharisees, he knows exactly who he's talking to. He knows their reputation. He knows they've been killing Jesus' followers. But he pulls no punches. He lays out everything as far as saying, you guys killed the Messiah. And I believe that was the Spirit working through him, giving him boldness. And ultimately, he paid the price. But he didn't fear that because of the Spirit. Um, another thing that the Spirit did for the, the apostles and the early Christians, it gave them compassion for those in physical and spiritual need. Um, in Acts four thirty-two through 35 this is the account. Now the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. So they were given compassion. Um, At times, they were given the ability to heal the sick and the disabled. In Acts 5... And around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That was an empowering of the Spirit. When we walk by the Spirit, He will grant us what we need to do the will of God. And so, if we look at ourselves and we say, Why don't I feel equipped to spread the gospel? Why don't I feel empowered to do God's work? Well, it may be that we're struggling to walk by the Spirit. All of this hinges on that Galatians 5, the contrast between the flesh and the Spirit, the conflict, and what we are submitting ourselves to, what desires we're allowing to have influence in our life. But with that empowerment comes the third thing. When we walk by the Spirit, we have authority. Ephesians 1 13 to 14 says this, In him you also, when you have heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then in 2 Corinthians verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, those don't necessarily talk about authority directly, but I want to talk about this idea of being sealed. What does it mean to be sealed? When we think about being sealed today, we probably think of a container, a Ziploc bag, a vacuum-sealed package, um, a container with a lid, that annoying thing you have to peel off the inside of the ketchup bottle. But when they're talking about being sealed here, they're talking about something a little differently. In an ancient in medieval times, a person of authority would have something called a seal, and it's basically a symbol that represents them. And so, for our example, we'll just take a king. So a king would have a symbol that would be his seal, and he would have it on his ring, or he would have a stamp. And when he needed to send a message to someone of importance, it would be written on a piece of paper, and that piece of paper would be rolled up or folded, and then it would be sealed closed with wax. But before the wax would harden, he would take that seal, and he would put his symbol on it. And so then that message, if it arrived with that seal intact, would then carry the authority of the king. It would be authentic from the king. And so the people that got it would know, hey, this is the king's words. To an even greater extent, if it was a situation where the message was to be read, the messenger would carry it. And then if it was sealed, when he opened it and read those words, it would be as if the king were speaking. His words were the king's words. So, when we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that means that we are under and carry the authority of God. When we carry out the will of God, we do so with the same, same authority as if God were doing it himself. Acts 4.13 says this, and this is speaking of Peter and John after they spoke. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The people that heard Peter and John speaking recognized an authority. But what authority did they recognize? That he had been with Jesus. The words they spoke were Jesus' words. And so when we carry out God's will, as we walk by the Spirit, We do so with his authority. But what's even greater about that example than the the example of the king is that not only do we, not only, sorry, I'm lost here. Not only, here we go, I want to make sure I get this right. Not only are we representatives of God, God is actually doing the work through us because his Holy Spirit is within us willing to do the work. We do the will of God and speak his gospel with authority because it is he that is doing the work through us by his spirit. Now think about that for just a minute. Because this is something that has really been rattling around in my brain a lot this week. God, who has the power to create with a word, as we know from Genesis, has promised to grant us his power and authority through his spirit. If we are walking by the Spirit, if the Spirit is willing us to do God's work, it is not us doing it. It is God doing it within me. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Philippians 2 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I mean, Paul's talking about obedience there. And I mean, we think about obedience so many times as a checklist, but it's not, it's not us. If we allow the Spirit to work in us, our obedience is God doing the work in us for His will and His good pleasure. I know at times I look at the world around me and I see the brokenness and I see the opposition to the gospel and I think, how as a church are we supposed to do what God set us to do? This task is too great. But I take great encouragement and great hope in the truth that I found in these, this, this promise of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit and the power that gives us. If we as believers will walk by the Spirit, we will be empowered to do the work of God and we will carry His authority. Can you imagine what that would look like if we as First Christian Church were changed in the way that the early church was in Acts? Imagine the needy and the sick lining up in the parking lot outside because they knew we had an answer for them. And then imagine that when we present the gospel to them, they come to know that the answer isn't physical, but it's spiritual. And they repent and are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and begin to walk in Him as well. And then the process happens again. If there's one of you here that claims to follow Christ, and the thought of this doesn't give you goosebumps, I would venture to say you don't fully understand God's purpose for His church. Because as desolate and as far from God as we see the world around us, God has put the church in place to do his work, and he's given us the authority and the power to do it. And I say that again, not with arrogance, because it's not me. It is God doing the work in me. So why don't we see this happening? I know that's the question. Well, I think it's because, especially in America, we have a hard time walking by the Spirit. I know this is a struggle for me. In the verses prior to what I read in in Galatians 5, Paul wrote this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. There's a warning and a promise there. And Paul is quoting Jesus when he says that, when he was asked about the greatest commandment, and Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Why did Paul connect that commandment, love your neighbor as as yourself, to walking by the Spirit? Well, it's because walking to walk by the spirit i have to let go of my own wills and desires and dreams and allow the spirit to direct them and loving my neighbor as myself is the most practical physical way i can think of to do that as john the baptist said about jesus i must decrease and he must increase my will must decrease His will must increase. So, I'm going to ask a question here when it comes to because we talk about this loving your neighbor as yourself a lot in the church, right? But I don't know that we always embrace it. So, here's a few questions that I don't have the answers to myself. Do I really value my neighbor in the same way I value myself? Are their needs as concerning to me as my own needs? Are their hopes and dreams as important to me as my hopes and dreams? Do I value their children as much as I value my own? Is their eternal destiny as important to me as mine? Do I care as much about my neighbor knowing Jesus and being saved as I care about myself? Do I value God's will more than my own? If the answer to that question is not yes, walking by the Spirit is going to be extremely difficult. And I do believe that that's why the American church does not see this revival that we ask for and that we see happening in other parts of the world. It's difficult, if we're honest, in this culture to be selfless. I mean, pursuing our hopes and dreams, that's that's the American way, right? We're encouraged to put ourselves first, and then we can be generous. But that's not what we're called to. That's not the desire of the Spirit. I mean, if you look at the list, some of those things that Paul puts out as the works of flesh, we are obviously sinful, right? Idolatry, sexual immorality. But some other things seem a little more justifiable, you know, appetites, pleasures. And I'm not saying that God didn't create good things in this world for us to enjoy. But if those are the things that I desire, if those are the things that are pushing my will forward, then I'm in conflict with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, submission to the Holy Spirit. That's a word that I didn't say a lot today, but that's really at the core of this. And you get back to that circular thing, you know, which comes first, salvation or a saving faith and the work of the Spirit in my life. Because the thing is, I don't think any of us would argue that if we repent, baptize, follow Jesus, we're promised we have the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit can't do His work in us without our being willing to follow it. God doesn't work like that. His will isn't to take control of me. It's for me to allow Him control. Is my will... And desire God's will and desire. Do I value God's will and the will of His Spirit in my life more than I value my own? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the promise of your Spirit. We thank you even more for the promise of that change of heart. That you will do in us if we would allow it. I take encouragement knowing that that's not something that I have to do on my own because I can't, but that it's your work in me. Lord, I pray that as a church we would learn to walk by your Spirit, that you would change in us our desires and our will, and it would become in line with yours. Lord, I pray all of these things for your glory. Because we know that your purpose for us is to spread your gospel in the world. We thank you so much for Jesus because it's, we know because of him that all of this is possible. Because of his sacrifice, his resurrection. And again, we thank you for your spirit and his work in our lives. I pray that we would be submissive to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.